Welcome to New Models. The following episode was recorded earlier this week with journalist and Rave New World Substack writer Michelle Luke, who, on assignment for The Guardian, was embedded with a group of climate activists that blockaded the main road to this year's Burning Man. If we can make a full city of 100,000 people in the desert with zero resources on a dry lake bed, we can actually change some problems. That's a fucking road where people need to make money. Demanding that Burning Man ban private jets and single-use plastics, the protest ended violently when tribal police rammed through the barricade and arrested the activists with guns drawn, video of which went viral after Michelle posted it to her Instagram. We don't usually make episodes public this soon after they're released, but our conversation with Michelle ended up being only the first act of a bigger story. Rare, heavy rains have flooded Black Rock City's Playa, an ancient lake bed in Nevada two hours outside of Reno, turning the dry alkaline soil into a deep, caustic mud and preventing the 60,000 Burning Man attendees and their vehicles from leaving. The toilets cannot be emptied and the man cannot be burned, and more rain is expected today and tomorrow. In between chiptune covers of Black Sabbath and electro-swing mashups, Burning Man's live radio station continues to report on the situation, with updates read in a grating, head-splitting impression of Yoda from Star Wars. Some burners speculate they won't be able to leave the playa until Thursday. At the end of this episode, Michelle wonders if Burning Man still makes sense in a time of increasingly frequent and varied planetary crises. If this theatrical, hedonistic LARPing of the apocalypse with origins in Silicon Valley perhaps now finds itself in a different context, and therefore with a different meaning, 37 years after it was founded. Over the next few days, many of those trapped in the now liquid desert may be wondering the same. Not every New Models episode is made public, but you can access all of our podcast interviews, special reports, and audio dramas by joining us at substack.newmodels.com or patreon.com newmodels, where you can also become a member of the New Models Discord. The Collapsology group from our Discord just published their collected essays exploring the climate crisis, activism, and the spiritual dimensions of collapse in a 100-page full-color zine, which, along with a limited edition accompanying card game, is available at shop.newmodels.com. But for now, here is our unlocked episode on the Burning Man blockade with Rave New World's Michelle Luke. Hours and hours of bullshit to get to this fucking I've point. Oh, good. Well, you should fucking know better than fucking doing here. You should fucking know better than this. Ass clown. This is a climate protest. That's what I heard. Yeah. What do you think? I think that people have a right to express themselves. I think that we have a right to protest. However, blocking traffic does bring it a little bit far, you know. We have to wait four plus hours to set up camp. We're all trying to go fucking burn. What do they think this is gonna do? Do you think they're gonna change climate change by blocking the road to Burning Man? It's idiocy. I think that their argument is that they believe that Burning Man is part of the problem. I don't care what their argument is. They can go fuck themselves. <laughs> this is the most liberal group of people you can find on the planet. Liberalism is not the answer either. We need burners to rise up. I don't fucking give a fuck. What do you think about the climate protest that's happening right now? 
Well, I understand that, and I think it's important. But there's a bunch of people trying to enjoy the party and enjoy, it. you know, a lot of a lot of us agree with the movement. You're putting my life Ma'am, I'm a reporter, and I was just wondering what tribe you're from. Hi, you, right here. They're protesting here on Reservation Line, and they fucking can't be doing that. We got to get to an airport right now. That's yeah. why they need to move. The protesters are demanding that Burning Man gets rid of private jets. I don't have a private jet. This man, get off the highway. This is a state route. 30 seconds. Send your leader to my vehicle. Let's talk. Get off the fucking road. What do you think about the protest that's happening today? Well, Burning Man is relatively hypocritical in plenty of ways, but I think you'd be very, very hard-pressed to find something less hypocritical, if that makes sense. Like, go to any major festival and see what that looks like. You know that Burning Man's carbon footprint is larger than most music festivals in the world. Yeah, due to its nature, because it's because this isn't a festival. Welcome to the New Models Podcast. As Nevada's Black Rock City opened its gates to Burning Man attendees this past Sunday, climate activists erected a roadblock across the festival's mainland artery, calling for fellow burners to pressure organizers to ban private jets and single-use plastics. While the protest lasted barely half an hour, it was ended via aggressive intervention by local law enforcement. It catalyzed a megastorm of takes. And even while many directly impacted by the makeshift blockade commented on the futility of the activist stunt, its adjacency to so many hashtagable triggers, climate, decarbonization, police violence, tribal lands, white privilege, tech utopianism, degrowth, and the much-loved and much-loathed Burning Man itself, propelled the protest to trending status across social media within hours. Much of the debate played out across the Instagram and X accounts of journalist and Rave New World Substack author Michelle Luke while she was on assignment writing about the climate action for The Guardian. New Models listeners will know that the changing nature of activism has been on our minds lately, particularly in the face of what seems to be widespread narrative entropy and rising confusion over how to respond to the polycrisis that is climate change. So we reached out to Michelle, who kindly made time for us while she was still in Reno between filing her Guardian piece and catching her ride back out to the burn. I'm Lil Internet, joined by my co-host Carly Busta. Our guest is journalist and friend of the pod, Michelle Luke. Let's get into it. This is a new model special report. We're talking with repeat guest, friend of the pod, Michelle Luke, who's a journalist and also writes an amazing subset called Rave New World, which covers party, politics, drugs, changing cultural norms, raves, of course, vibes, lots of vibes. It's incredible. Highly recommend it. I feel like we check in with you once a year. And for some reason, always, I think around this time of year and several times now have been around issues actually of like culture and protest because you also reported from the chop when that was happening back during like BLM COVID times. Yeah. I was actually just thinking it's so funny that I'm about to go into possibly the most high clout temporary autonomous zone ever, which is Burning Man. (laughs) You know, it is a continuation of that beat. 
Well, you're on your way to BlackRock City momentarily. So maybe actually as a way of beginning, there was this great post to Instagram that really hit a note. A lot of people responded to it. It had to do with a roadblock blocking one of the main arteries or maybe the main road from Reno to BlackRock City. You're embedded with a group of climate activists. Can you just like sketch out for us a bit, like what were the demands? What was the action? Just generally sketch out what you just witnessed yesterday. Sure. So, yeah, like you said, I've been embedded with these climate activists who are actually disillusioned burners. So they really come from uh. the rave scene. And they reached out to me a couple months ago asking if I wanted to come to this protest that they were planning at Burning Man, which was top secret because they obviously didn't uh. want anyone tipped off about their plan, which was to block the road into Burning Man. And that road is like this really rural two-lane highway that's really narrow. You can't really like pass people easily on it. And it's really winding through the desert a lot of times with no service. And so long lines of traffic are already a thing going in and out of the burn. And their kind of genius plan, I think, was to create a blockade in this particularly narrow stretch of the road and erect banners and signs you know, demanding that the festival does several things. One, ban private jets, which have been obviously like a huge part of this sort of elite influx of Silicon Valley tech billionaires coming into the festival. Two, they want to ban single-use plastics. Easy enough. Three, they want to cap unlimited generator and propane use at the festival, which mm. are both really, really important trenched into the current festival culture. There's so many art cars that burn gas to move around and also they burn a lot of the art. So yeah. there's a lot of burning going on at Burning Man. It's not just the man. Right. And, you know, they actually told me that they purposely made their demands really low because they wanted to show that even the simplest things the organization would not be able to fulfill. And so it would look embarrassing for them. And I think that what's kind of interesting about this group is that they're also staunchly anti-capitalist. So in addition to like climate concerns, you know, they're really advocating for systemic change away from extraction. They want to focus on degrowth. They think that Burning Man's sort of tech utopianist like solutionism isn't going to solve the climate crisis. And we can kind of go into those things later. But when I first heard about this plan, I immediately thought, okay, that's a good story. But I hesitated because I knew that their numbers were so low. There was only really a group of like seven people involved. And part of that is because of just like widespread disillusionment in the protest scene right now. They mm. do, a lot of climate groups are telling me that they just don't have the numbers in general at protests. In speaking with them, you know, I also realized that they haven't really been activists for very long. Most of them started in 2019. Some of them have been doing it for longer. But like I said, these are really burners themselves who've become recently disillusioned. They've tried doing art protests before, like bringing art into the festival. And they felt like the response from burners has been so flippant. And so like, what? Mm. Like, no, we're the solution to climate change, not the problem. Mm. And they tried to do a protest in New York City over the summer where they wanted to invite burners to come out and they had DJs playing on the streets and stuff. But a lot of their friends from the community told them, like, we don't want to be political. Mm. So mm -hmm. all of those events leading up to this 
they said, radicalized them to the point where they were just like, okay, fuck the burn and decided to do this protest. And what was really interesting is that I realized that their inexperience and their lack of numbers actually made the protest more dramatic and more exciting and more viral on social media, I think, because a lot of things went wrong. And those moments of conflict play really well online and ended up helping them go viral today. Like the video that I posted of what happened at the protest where an actual tribal police ranger rammed into the barricade that they had constructed and nearly hit some of the protesters. That video is literally breaking the internet right now. And so many people from both sides are just really chiming into this discourse. Maybe we could start then with just to fill in a little more detail. You made this post to Instagram. And of course, for the past 15 years, since at least Tahir Square, you have social media and direct action having an intertwined role. One helps the other or one propels the other, right? They, they kind of need each other in a way. And on your Instagram post, you captured a lot of people's responses. So you, you capture the direct action. This is happening on tribal lands, which adds another layer of complication to it. And you have a number of different reactions. So maybe could you take us through the different roles you saw people playing? Over the past 15 years, we've come to almost even concretize certain roles. Oh, I am the person performing the direct action. I am the person disrupted by the direct action. I am the law enforcement. Could you talk a little bit about those roles and the language that you heard and maybe how that's changed since you've been paying attention to the stuff? Yeah, I think when it comes to performativity, the most striking thing to me was how much of a contrast there was in the efficacy of the protest on the ground versus online. I think that by Uh. all measures, the protest on the ground was a failure. (laughs) Um, I think that they were completely outnumbered. I think that the way that they positioned their vehicles in the trailer was too spread apart. And what ended up happening is that people in their cars came out and confronted the protesters. A lot of these Burning Man attendees were fucking pissed to be held up in line and like did not care what the cause was. Interestingly, there were also some indigenous members of the Paiute tribe, which owns the tribal land where this protest was taking place. The protesters had chosen this site very strategically. They did not want to be on federal BLM land, which is where most Mm. of Burning Man happens because they didn't want federal charges. But I think that kind of backfired because the indigenous people said, get off our land. We do not endorse this protest. You don't have our permission. So it was like a DIY coalition Mm -hmm. that formed between several indigenous people and some burners who just started lifting up the trailer and removing the barricade (laughs) themselves. And so members of the public just started directing traffic around the blockade. Mm -hmm. And I think that, again, because they just didn't have the numbers to hold their ground or to talk and engage with the people that were coming up, their message really wasn't perpetuated amongst the crowd of people Mm. in line. I think a lot of people were really confused. They understood that it was a climate change protest, but they didn't understand why they were targeting Burning Man, you know, because Burning Man Mm. has all of these sustainable practices already embedded into their principles and their ethos. They have this leave no trace thing where everyone has to clean up after themselves. They're investing in carbon offsets and solar panels and blah, blah, blah. A lot of people were like, you know what, they're doing so much more than a festival like EDC or Lollapalooza, like, why are you protesting people who are on your side? And I think, of course, the protesters 
answer to that would have been because we don't think that technology is going to save us. We think that we need to focus on deep Mm. growth and anti-capitalism, but that wasn't getting put out, right? And so by the end of the protest, it only lasted 35 minutes before the cops came and and, and rammed through the barricade. But as soon as I posted the tweet and the Instagram posts, the reaction was completely viral and it was completely different. There were so many people who I think had like a sense of schadenfreude, Mm. like everybody loves hating burners. So there was a lot of that. It's trending in the United States right now, by the way, on Twitter, like top US trends. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, there was definitely something zeitgeisty about it. So, you know, I think in this day and age and even the activists agreed, like, their acts of civil disobedience is not meant for flesh world. It's for social media. Yeah. And I think everybody knows that, like you said, protests are often theatrical. It's almost like a football game or like a fucking wrestling match where they're all like screaming really loudly and really amplifying how much they're being hurt by the cops and all these things, you know. You're trained that in direct action training. Like you're trained to amplify as much as possible because you want to make as big of an image as possible for whoever's recording it. That's actually a, a strategy and it's a good strategy in a sense. It does make it more effective media. You're doing the action for the flesh world, but also for the or whatever. I question, though, if this sort of histrionics ultimately long term are Mm. effective, because I think like there's such widespread cynicism towards the efficacy of protest right now. And I think some of that is because people can just they can feel it. People aren't dumb. You can see that so much of it, both on the protester side and on the media side, is just completely hyperbole, right? This is not to downplay the Mm. real police brutality that happened at this protest. Like I saw Many of the protesters scuffed up from being like tackled to the ground. Woman was like bleeding from her Mm. forehead, you know, knees on their backs, all of that. Like, I think that ramming into the barricade was completely unnecessary. They were totally peaceful. There were literally four people. Like, it was not a danger. Also Um, dangerous if they were chained to it or something. Yeah, definitely. One of the rangers actually later told me that someone had called into the dispatch reporting that a member of the public was armed and was planning to shoot the protesters, which is like very America. But I still don't understand the connection between that and like thinking that the protesters were dangerous. Right. But what really was eye opening to me about this protest was the performativity of the cops themselves. Uh, uh (laughs) So the cop that ran through the barricade pulling out his taser saying I'm going to take all of you fucking out being the sort of like cowboy persona he later came up to talk to the journalist and was like giving us statements and being really helpful and it was like this Jekyll and Hyde personality and then on top of that later apparently after tackling all these people to the ground and stuff he told the protesters when he released them, please make sure that you wear your seatbelts on the way home. You can't go home if you don't have enough seats. Like you need to wear your seatbelts. <laughs> so it was insane. It's so classic. And then he also told them that he himself was a climate activist. <laughs> I don't understand. So none of them were charged in the end. They have like civil misdemeanors, which aren't like actual arrest crimes, but they will have to go to tribal court in October. Mm. A lot of the things that they were cited for were like, unlicensed camping on tribal grounds. Right. <laughs> Just like kind of bizarre charges. They didn't get any of the things that they were expecting to get, like trespassing or obstructing traffic and things right. like that. I mean, 
continuing this idea of performativity. I or mean, performative, performative, like utterances, performative exactly. speech. I mean, the one thing you shared with us some audio and also just the audio in your Instagram post, we hear these like keywords. Julian, you often speak about words that like... Words that execute scripts. They're exactly. like loaded with programs. It's not just the word and it's the sign and signifier. It's like... You'd imagine it's a way like a brand is imbued with a message or an identity. So you say the word in order to like... To signal a, a, a sort of tribal... Sorry, wrong place to use this word. <laughs> you use the word to show an ideological in-group that you're a part of or to affect a certain emotion or a certain semantic cloud that surrounds the particular right. word. Like you had one person who was in the line of cars was talking about, I think you asked, do you think people have the right to protest? And that word protest set off, oh, I think people totally have the right to protest. I just don't support destruction of things. I don't support inconveniencing people. And, you know, you're like, okay, well, what does the word protest mean to you? I mean, there has to be some sacrifice that there's going to be a protest. And this person cited a very nice protest in downtown LA that lasted 20 or 30 minutes and everyone enjoyed themselves. And you're like, okay, you want to be, you don't want to go on record saying that you don't think protesting is okay. People have the right to protest. But how you're going to define that is very different, I think, than probably what the climate activist imagined an effective protest would be. Yeah, I mean, burners today, at least the people in the crowd that I saw, are just so far removed from the anarchist roots of Burning Man, you know? And I think their understanding of civil disobedience is very sort of historically blind. I feel like maybe mm. it's an American thing where people are just not used to seeing blockades and to them it just feels like you're being rude. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, this protest is an incredible, one of the most interesting ones I've ever seen. Example of something that we had talked to the artist Trevor Paglin about, the palladium, right? Mm, These objects that the CIA puts into the sky that attract all of this attention from every sensor they can possibly trigger. To one, it looks like a fleet of bombers. To the other, it looks like a UFO. And we also keep going back to that one original example of the dress where some people swore it was blue and gold, others swore it was black and white or something. And there was no resolving those two sides. Which made it really successful because because of that conflict, it meant that it would then be propelled on social media and people would continue to argue it. And in a way, this protest was like the perfect palladium because everybody had their side and everyone had their role in this. We are in a huge crisis. This did not block people going to work or school. It delayed mostly privileged people getting to their vacation by about one hour out of a whole week. Lol. Police violence is the ultimate crime here. How disgraceful. And the fact he got out his weapon. Gross, America. It wasn't Nevada police. It was Paiute tribal police who made the arrests. How privileged is it to invade tribal lands without invitation or asking their permission to do this? A tribal police corporal was killed in the line of duty just four days ago. You really think they're in the mood to play nice dealing with this stupid bullshit? White saviors moving into native land, a tale as old as time. Why not protest the U.S. Patent Office that has sequestered more than 5,000 patents for clean energy production under the guise of national security? Those miles of idling cars is great for the environment. 60,000 people worth their generators and drugs and garbage move onto the playa every year and you're worried about a traffic jam on the way in? Sounds about right. Burning Man is full of so many hypocritical holier-than-thou types who are actually super privileged. 
None of those trucks got 4 by 4 Fuck that little-ass blockade. Go around. Climate activism has become a cult. If you disagree with its members, you are branded as a climate change denier. Going to Burning Man by plane? You are a capitalist who doesn't care about the planet. Now we have this cringe comment section echoing the burners not getting the protest by trying to do gotcha politics against the journalist covering the situation. Won't the private planes just fly over them? I don't think anyone knows how to protest climate change TBH. Kudos to those trying, I guess. Even more interestingly is how it attracted all of this performative language, all this language that executes scripts, where you have this idea, which I personally think it's almost like some noble savage 2.0 idea of a homogenous, romanticized, indigenous population. You know, people asking, oh, did they ask for permission to be on tribal lands? As if protests ask permission. Right. You also see the schadenfreude from people towards the right of tribal police rammed the barricade, mm. you know, knowing that it would like trigger progressives. It was a gotcha that right. it was indigenous tribal cops right. that, that broke up the protest, right? And I just think it's fascinating how much of the reality behind these words this protest revealed. Also hearing people coming up to the protesters and just saying, Burning Man, we have climate workshops. Right. Like, you know, like, I mean, all of these words that are just kind of loaded with this progressive Therapeutic for people. Right. And and this protest kind of just became this hyper meme that sucked the bullshit out of all of these, all of the scripts that these words run. Yeah, totally. Oh, I have an electric vehicle. Incredibly Uh, fascinating. Every single one of those words was used in its most potent way. To signify, to execute a script. Right. Right. And the reality is so much more complex, though. Like, speaking of the indigenous climate issues, what I realized through my research is that Burning Man is actually teaming up with the Paiute tribe to sue the federal government right now over a clean energy project that's supposed to happen in the city near where Burning Man happens because this um, company, Ormat, is trying to build, you know, geothermal wells for renewable energy, but it's allegedly going to dry up the hot springs that are sacred sites for the indigenous people, as well as endangered local wildlife. So it's like Burning Man, which is, I think, sustainably oriented, whether or not they're effective is another idea, but they do care about the environment and they're teaming up with an indigenous tribe to block a clean energy project. Like this shit is just really complicated and you can't reduce it into means. But what I realized, you know, is that The police were performing for their audience. The protesters are performing for their allegiance on social media. And the burners are performing for other burners within their bubble world. I mean, the whole thing just was operating on this really disassociated meta level at the same time that that it also felt very primal and very raw on the ground. Venkatesh Rao had an interesting post on his Ribbon Farm substack and he was talking about his position on climate and we've been thinking a lot about narrative implosion and noticing how a lot of these activist threads have lost steam. I mean, there's still Just Stop Oil and a group in our community just published an entire zine on climate collapse. I mean, there's still activity that's happening, but there does seem to be a mass draining of energy around these actions. But Venkat was like, 
well, maybe one of the reasons is this like massive narrative web around climate and everybody is just vying to not be an NPC in a narrative that just seems to be dissolving in real time, right? So it's like everyone is playing their heroic role and they'd almost rather play their heroic role and get credit for that role or feel real in that role than they would, I mean, maybe this is cynical, actually do the thing that they need to do to actually help. Because also no one really knows what to do to help because it's just such a complex position. Do you side with the indigenous tribe who is losing their hot springs? Do you side with the clean energy project, which will repatriate some clean energy to America and not be reliant on China? You know, that's so complex that people are just like, I'm just going to choose my role in this multiplayer game. And that's about as much bandwidth as I have. So in response to what you were saying about this sort of narrative collapse around the climate movement right now, I kind of want to push back on that a little bit, because I think one of the reasons why climate protests, like what just happened at Burning Man, are becoming the zeitgeist and catching on so much is because they're branching out and connecting to other social movements, like Stop Cop City being Mm. sort of connected to BLM. And then now this Burning Man climate protest being connected to like capitalism and inequality. Like, I think that's one of the reasons why more and more people feel like they can be a part or play a role in this movement rather than the maybe Greenpeace model where it was so much more about saving trees. But one interesting thing about that is you can almost imagine then the narrative collapse. It's kind of like narratives collapsing onto each other or just collapsing into just a vibe of dysfunction in general that maybe could lead to a more amorphous but broader movement pushing back against this core decay where the environment and inequality and all of these things do intersect. I mean, I still think, though, that there's like this big disconnect between people wanting to voice their dissent and organizing and having some kind of critical mass. And what kind of leverage does that have anymore? I mean, there was a good podcast on Ezra Klein this past week that was talking about the complexity of energy transition and what it really means to switch to renewables and just like the state insecurity issues. I think that people are becoming more aware of scope and they know that they can organize in a local way and that that's important. But how does that actually level up to not just corporations, but like state actors making energy contracts and like the global south and that scale, I think, is becoming increasingly apparent to more people, especially people who'd be tuned into climate protests. I mean, I wonder, are there conversations about the limits of agency? How do people think about scope when it comes to these protests? Well, I think we go back to performativity here, right? Like they know that Burning Man is not going to ban private jets or stop burning the man ever, probably. You know, I was speaking with one of the climate activists who's this very sweet young scientist who he's been traveling with this like 60-year-old former elementary school teacher who quit her job to be a full-time climate activist as well. And they're like this like buddy duo. But I was talking to him about how he thinks the climate movement has changed. And he was like, yes, I think earlier on, it was so much more about just like getting people out on the street. But because numbers have dwindled, interest has waned, what a lot of activists are doing now is really focusing on high visibility pressure points. Mm. So they're designing climate protests that are literally designed to go viral. Mm. And I think this Burning Man protest was like a perfect example of that. So it's not really meant to move Burning Man org to change. It's more just about, I guess, like raising consciousness and awareness of this issue and hopefully pulling people 
who might be disillusioned burners themselves or hate burning man, not the people on the road, but people online into their cause a little bit more. Right. I mean, of course, we're at an age now where like there is awareness, right? There is like so much awareness. Awareness is one thing that the past 10 years have given us. It's content. I mean, to some degree, it's like replaced TV. And you just filed a piece for The Guardian, which has been a very important arm of raising awareness. I mean, they've had a climate beat for a long time. They've broken some of the most heart-wrenching climate stories. So even as a journalist, what was your approach going into reporting on this piece? How do you feel a story like this? will travel or will move the needle. I mean, obviously it's like gaining all this attention. So it's an interesting story to people and it's one that should be told. What was your thinking? If you can like give a meta take on like what your thinking has been in reporting on climate activism in 2023? Well, I think the narrative thread that I'm the most interested in following is how counterculture is now being seen as hegemonic and the thing to protest. Uh, That's definitely a theme that runs throughout my work and is really on full display here where, you know, something like Burning Man, which began very counterculturally, you know, they have this ethos of decommodification where brands are literally not allowed to advertise. You're even discouraged from wearing clothing with brands (laughs) on it. Everything is gifted. There's no money exchange, blah, blah, blah. How the fuck did that become seen as like the thing that needs to be toppled? Mm. You know, I mean, that change, I think, has to do a lot with obviously the rise of the technocracy, Silicon Valley going from outside marginalized group into the autocracy. Right. I think it's not just confined to Burning Man. It's happening with like psychedelics becoming commodified Mm. and corporatized. Soon, I think there's going to be definitely a radical backlash against the psychedelic industry. I'm sorry, I'm not really fully answering your question when it relates to climate, but I'm really interested in the culture. And I think that climate is definitely becoming a huge part of the counterculture. The counter-counterculture, like the non-hegemonic one. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I saw a great meme that a climate activist made about this protest that had a picture of, you know, the activists on the ground with the officer on their back saying like, hey, burners, this is what real counterculture looks like. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) I think the question that I brought up is like, it feels to me like the climate activists are really advocating for austerity Mm. and deep growth, which runs really counter to the ideas of pleasure and excess and hedonism and expansive growth that Burning Man has been about, right? And it totally failed to reach like the Burning Man population. They are not down to like Mm. be inconvenienced or to have their fun impinged upon, which I think is kind of a really dire foreboding vision of the future, maybe of like, if what it takes to like save ourselves from this climate death spiral is like tightening our belts, maybe some cuts need to be made. (laughs) Some lifestyle changes need to be made towards austerity. It just doesn't give me hope that we as a population are ready to do that. I think that people just want to fucking party and feel like they're creating technology that's going to save them. Yeah. And this actually touches on something that we were thinking about. One of the people in Crude Futures, which is the group of new models that produces scene and this card game where you can role play collapse and how to navigate it, talked about the dimension of spirituality in Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion protests and how to paraphrase, it's less about the climate protest being effective maybe it is effective, maybe it isn't, then it is about 
feeling an act of martyrdom or feeling an act of like collective sacrifice that gives you some sense of meaning or power against pretty extreme existential uncertainty. And to link this to Burning Man, the originating mythos around Burning Man of like, you know, no money, nothing for sale, no capitalism. And I feel like this is even maybe in the tenets or commandments they give you when you get your ticket. Radical self-sufficiency, a kind of self-sacrifice, a kind of radical collectivity. And there's something interesting that happens if you arrive at Burning Man on, say, Monday or Sunday of the week. For those who aren't familiar, Burning Man lasts a week for most participants. You can get there as early as the first Sunday, the man burns the next Sunday. And you can arrive at any point up until, I think, Saturday night. I think that's like the latest you can arrive. And the people who arrive on Monday, they're like the really dedicated ones. And you watch this population change every single day. And there's kind of like a cold shoulder towards those who fly in on a Friday or even like drive in on a Friday. They're not dedicated burners. They're just there for the party. And you watch the sentiment of this population change. And you realize for a lot of people, especially those who arrive early, the pleasure comes through this act of asceticism, this experience of post-apocalyptic community and landscape where radical self-sufficiency is necessary. And like, look, we don't need money. We don't need brand names. We just need each other, trust, and maybe some drugs and music. And like, look at the amazing pleasure we can have with so few things. It's like another world is possible, right? Look how beautiful this could be. And there's a feeling with every day that that core is being diluted and you're disappointed by that. And there's a resentment. I mean, I was there in 2003, I think, and this is like still in the dot-com bust cycle, but I remember that. And I remember how there's like a spiritual dimension of it. And you feel like those who come later aren't serious. And one thing that occurred to me watching your coverage of the protest was like, these burners are the hardcore burners who like believe in the originating narrative around Burning Man. And they want that experience. And they I shouldn't speak for them. I'm just imagining one way of engaging it. They feel like if they can at least get Burning Man to be pure again, they can at least have one place on earth where for one week we can test out this theory of like, what would it be if we just put aside capitalism and we just have each other and we just have music? It's like our principles. We could actually like test out those principles for a week and wouldn't it be beautiful? And it's like their protest almost has more to do about a kind of like collective spirituality than it does really about oil. I mean, carbon reduction is important. I mean, that is part of it. But like the more immediate thing is just like, can we get this culture to be a pure one again? Does that track? I mean, that's, I I think that's the spiritual dimension is an important one somehow. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. I think that, yes, there's obviously such a hunger for modern day rituals. Yeah. And Burning Man is at its heart, this pagan bacchanal with like the ritualistic burning of the man, as well as this temple that exists in the center of the, of the festival where people leave mementos for people who have passed in their lives. And then they also burn that. And, you know, the woman sitting next to me on the plane was this like really nervous middle-aged woman with like a mask on. And she just didn't seem like someone that I'd ever encountered at like other music festivals. And that's one of the most beautiful things about Burning Man to me is that it's cross-generational yeah. and it's full of normies. It's not just for underground heads only, if you know, you know, kind of vibes. It's totally mass appeal. And so it allows 
other people to come on board without having to do much digging. But anyway, she told me that the reason why she was there is because her husband led a camp and he died last year. And the camp is doing this big memorial service for him at the temple. And she started crying as she told me this. And I thought, you know, this ritual that Burning Man is providing for her for collective grief is really powerful and really needed. But at the same time, I think one of the reasons why Burning Man is like losing a lot of its appeal, you know, it's really interesting this year, like so many resale tickets were floating mm. around the market. A lot of people are not going to Burning Man this year. Yeah, like it's down by half or something. Yeah. I mean, it has to do with like economic downturn, tech workers being laid off. Last year's had like record-breaking temperatures. The desert was just like totally inhospitable. It was like a conflux of factors. But I think one of the things that I'm really interested in is how the metaphor of Burning Man, as well as this role-playing apocalyptic cosplay that happens, is just not viable Mm. in this current era, I think. First of all, this idea of like burning the man, which, you know, there are many mythologies around it, but one of them is this idea that you're like sticking it to the man, right? right? right. You're literally burning the man. And I think in the era of climate collapse, where the whole desert is burning up, in fact, the whole world is burning up. And the desert was flooded, actually, ironically, last week. I know. We are already in the apocalypse. So there's no reason to pretend that we're in one. And burning the man and contributing more fossil fuels to the air, it's like, no, we are the man. We are the ones who are burning, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So I think the metaphor is just collapsing. and, And that's part of the reason why... A lot of people are calling for Burning Man to stop being this bubble where people just practice living a different kind of reality and to mobilize more into the real world. One of the activists' demands is that they really want the organization to ask burners to stage a march on Washington. You know, the org just said, okay, next week we are all going to show up and like camp in Washington. It would happen. Yeah, right. They just want Burning Man to do more in default reality. They already are, but I think that they could do more. I think, Carly, though, you might be right that bear market burn is better than bull market burn. Uh Uh, I mean, I was doing a little research and ended up on Robot Hearts Instagram, which is like the celeb mobile party bus that has right. the, the hottest DJs, DJs on the burn. Yeah. Uh, and someone asked, why is there this drop-off in attendance? And one of the replies someone wrote, turns out the economy of gifting is actually based on interest rate hikes. And <laughs> I find it interesting, though, that the ZERP narrative, like, yeah. that the ZERP era was like this era of mass delusion. Yeah. Like, and it's wild how many things it affects. And I think this is post-ZERP Burning Man attendance. I think part of that is actually true. And I don't know, it might be end up being good for the I think it'll be burn. interesting. Yeah, I think it'll be good for the burn, probably. It'll be an interesting year. I've never yeah. been. My parents have been, but right, I, I've, it's true, I've yeah. never been. It definitely feels like a tipping point for the festival this year, which is why I'm glad I'm choosing it to, as my virgin burn experience, (laughs) you know, with this sort of like mass exodus away from the festival. Lots of people from Silicon Valley and tech maybe choosing not to go or actually being booted by the festival itself. I know the festival has taken a lot of steps to 
crack down on luxury camps and not give them placement within the festival. So there are some really big wellness, psychedelic, tech bro influencers like this guy, Aubrey Marcus, who's like boycotting the burn this year. Mm. (laughs) And then at the same time, you know, it's being protested by climate activists who see it as hegemonic. So it just feels like the festival has reached this like breaking point and it needs to kind of figure out what it's going to be if, you know, the sort of thesis that it is post-tech or becoming post-tech in a way that the Silicon Valley is like over it. Like, what is it going to be next? Does it have anything to offer or is it just going to kind of disappear into the ether as no longer relevant. That's I'm super not interesting. Sure. That's what I'm going to find out. Especially in a time of like, you know, where devirtualization is really important. And the burn before we all like were meeting on Discord, you know, and being like, okay, we'll meet up, you know, once a year. The burn's been doing that for like 30 years, right? They've been like their virtual community 12 months out of the year and just come together, you know, they quote quote come home for one week a year where they see each other. They devirtualize the ultimate um, devirtualization. Exactly in Burning man. So it will be interesting to see if, yeah, what that will look like post-tech boom. I also have one theory I want to float by you and get your response to it. I mean, you mentioned that the activists sort of had this austerity approach and even the hedonism of Burning Man is seen as perhaps like part of the problem. And I'm starting to wonder, especially with the uh, tension, I forget who wrote the book, but uh, Someone's been doing the podcast rounds a lot recently who wrote this book on Palo Alto and critical of the California ideology, Mm. being socially liberal and then fiscally like libertarian. Mm. It almost feels to me like there's a reassessment of the romantic ideal of the hippie era, the idea that hedonism and like wild self-expression is inherently somehow part of being a leftist or being a progressive. And that there's sort of a deep intractable libertarianism to that kind of hedonic spirit that everyone thinks about is like a leftist revolutionary spirit. And there might be a more austerity-based reassessment of what it means to be uh, anti-capitalist or something like Mm, this. And as much as I do think a narco-eco degrowth future where instead of manufacturing a whole bunch of bullshit and extracting a whole bunch of bullshit, it's just endless fields of ephedra and and poppies and weed and, and mushrooms or whatever. And it's just all pleasure and very low amount of extraction and fossil fuels, which I think is probably tied to Burning Man core ethos. Activists might be on to something being wary of unbridled hedonism and totally free and wild personal individual choice and freedom. I, I want to respond to that two ways, actually. So one of the more interesting critiques that I've heard from someone who is involved with a sustainability-oriented camp at Burning Man called Solar Punks, where they bring in like solar panels and build a community microgrid. She told me that she thinks the problem right now is that Burning Man is too grassroots, bottom up, you know, raise your hand if you want to do mm. renewable energy kind of vibe. And she thinks that the festival needs to have like more organization and more mandates and more like, you know, Mm. banning single use plastics or like mandating that everyone uses solar, which Mm. goes against like the anarchist principles of what the festival is about. So that kind of seemed to me this like logical complexity where I'm like, how do you preserve this like anarchic spirit, but at the same time create enough coordination where you can actually move towards your goals Mm -hmm. of being carbon negative by 2030. It doesn't seem like market forces are going to bring you there. 
So that's kind of an existential threat to Burning Man, I think, when it comes to how it's going to figure out this climate problem. And then second of all, when it comes to, yeah, this vibe of like hippie era hedonism, I agree. I don't think that it's avant-garde anymore. I think that the parties that I've attended that feel more culturally upstream are actually much more intimate and in terms of just the vibe being much slower mm. and psychedelic and internal, you know, we want to talk about maybe friends with benefits, which I, I recently wrote about. It was like the most wholesome festival I've <laughs> ever been to. Like the party literally ended at midnight every night, you know, like there were no afters and everybody was doing mushrooms and like there were tons of non-alcoholic drinks. And it's the same vibe with all these parties that I'm going to in L.A. They're barely parties. They're like people sitting around in a park listening to someone play the harp. (laughs) And those (laughs) I'm serious. And those parties feel more avant garde to me than like some crazy rave that's going on till 5 a.m. in a warehouse, like cosplaying apocalyptic nihilism, like boring. I'm over it. (laughs) There's also an aspect of the cyberpunk tech dystopia actually being people's kind of utopia kind of you know it's so fetishized the aesthetic of it that they kind of don't mind if it happens right because like they can live the movie right right, and so I, i wonder if that fantasy ends up working in somewhat insidious ways in terms of impeding the hard work of mm. what it takes to actually do something about the situation humanity's in right now. I'm so allergic to the fucking steampunk aesthetic <laughs> that's so popular Uh-oh. at Burning Man. Like, You're I'm grateful that it. the yeah. theme this year is Animalia, which everybody is saying it means that it's the furry year. <laughs> like, I'll take a furry over a steampunk any day. <laughs> Yeah, do you have you have your outfits? Like, what are you packing? Guys, I'm so fucked. I literally decided to go to Burning Man with three days of prep. Like, I got the assignment on Monday and I left on Friday. So that's the best way to um, do it. I'm going with like bare bones essentials, just like a camping gear and just like looks from you know my club days. But Bring I'm goggles, really kind of though, relying you'll actually on actually need them or a ski mask yeah, or something. I brought a ton of acid. That's gonna be my lifeline. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, wish me luck. Well, dear, it's amazing talking to you. Yeah, this was so fun. Thank you for helping me think through this. Like, it's always so good to mind meld with you guys. Totally. Can't wait to hear how your burn actually went. If there's anything like me 20 years ago, I hated it so much the first day. I literally walked to the exit where they say the sign, if you leave, you can't come <laughs> back. And I was like, I'm fucking leaving. No I'm way. fucking checking out of here. I hate this place. Oh my God. But it gets better every single day. And in part, it's because the place gets more chaotic and the most beautiful part of the entire week is after they burn the man, you lose your point of orientation because at night you always see the man. Like that shows you where you are. And after the man burns on the last night, everything just, there's no center. It's like total decentralization. It's this beautiful metaphor for collapse really. But also when you just submit to the collapse and then you no longer really care about the directions anymore, you're just kind of in it. You're just kind of like in the flow of life and it's very beautiful. And so hang in there, stay through the burn. Don't walk out like I tried to do. You'll hate it in the beginning, but by the end, there'll still be something that is like very beautiful about it. As cringe as it fucking is, it's 
so cringe. It's so intensely cringe. This is 20 <laughs> years ago was cringe. That's really good advice, Carly. That's really good advice yeah. because I can't see myself becoming a burner. You won't, yeah. but you will kind of. How I learned to stop worrying and love the cringe. Exactly. That's exa- exactly, exactly it. Like at some point, somebody will like give you a tulip and a tutu. And I mean, it's like, so annoying. Oh my but God. It's also so great. I mean, I went, yeah, anyway, we can, we can swap stories on the other side of it. I can't wait to hear how your experience is. So Michelle, Luke, thank you so much. We always really appreciate your words on all things protest and party related. So great to have you calling in for this. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you guys. Enjoy Love the you. Love you too. Ciao. Thank you for listening to this New Model special report and thank you, Michelle Luke, for joining us. You can keep up with Michelle's writing about drugs, raves, and counterculture as she travels all over the world by joining ravenewworld.substack.com. For more on climate activism and the non-LARP version of Collapse, Crude Futures, the zine from the New Model server's Collapsology group, as well as a limited edition card game and poster, are available now at shop.newmodels.com. We will be back very soon. See you next episode. This has been a New Model Special Report. Edited and mixed by Lil Internet with pitched down Goa trance he downloaded from Soulseek. For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels or newmodels.substack.com.